0: Thank okay. Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we uh, have a preview of the planned 2023 activities of the European Space Agency. We visit the Moon Village Association at Federation Square to listen in on a panel discussion on space industry issues as they affect Australia. And we continue our remembrance of the STS-107 Columbia Space Shuttle disaster. Right, well let's begin with the preview of what the European Space Agency intends to do this year. With 2022 behind us, the European Space Agency, ESA,
1: readies itself with enthusiasm for the challenges and opportunities of 2023, another year in which it will strive to support and realise Europe's bold ambitions in space. These ambitions and programs do not only benefit the citizens of Europe, but also the global community. A prime example of this are the six Meteosat third-generation satellites, which ESA has developed with Umetsat. The first of this new generation weather satellites was launched at the end of 2022 and will soon deliver its first images. The MTG-I-1 and its still-to-be-launched siblings will allow for an earlier detection of storms and extreme weather events, serve to improve aviation safety and contribute to our understanding of Earth's changing climate. Monitoring our planet from space is also a task for the Copernicus Sentinel-1C satellite. This third Sentinel-1 satellite will be lifted into orbit on top of a Vega C. It will replace the Sentinel-1B and will provide day and night radar imagery of the Earth's surface, strengthening the European Union's Copernicus program, which is the most expansive Earth observation program in the world. To understand the universe and our place in it, ESA will launch two new astronomy missions in 2023. The innovative Euclid spacecraft is scheduled for launch in the summer of 2023 and has been designed to help us understand dark matter and dark energy. Two fundamental yet elusive forces governing the universe, but how, we still do not fully understand. Earlier in the spring, ESA's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, JUICE, will be launched. The spacecraft will make detailed observations of the gas giant and its three large ocean-bearing moons, Ganymede, Callisto and Europa. By studying the wider Jupiter system in depth, it could help to better understand the population of gas giants across the universe. JUICE will be launched on top of an Ariane 5 rocket. Europe soon to be retired, but until then, uncontested workhorse launcher. After its retirement, Ariane 5 is to be followed by the newly developed Ariane 6, which will make its maiden voyage later this year and for which preparations at Europe's spaceport are ongoing. Ariane 6 combines Ariane 5's reliability with a more flexible launcher configuration and more efficient assembly process. It also shares its P120C solid rocket motors with the Vega C, ESA's cost-efficient, lightweight launcher. With this varied and competitive launcher portfolio, Europe consolidates its position in the global launcher market and ensures independent access to space. 2023 will also be an important year for the new class of ESA career astronauts. In the spring, they will start their basic training, preparing them for future missions to low Earth orbit, the Moon, or even beyond. Another ESA astronaut who is training is Danish ESA astronaut Andreas Mogensen. In 2015 Andreas became the first Dane in space and later this year he will fly to the ISS for his first long-duration mission on board the station. His arrival will re-establish European presence on the International Space Station since the departure of Samantha Cristoforetti. Andreas is also expected to be the first European to pilot a SpaceX Dragon capsule. Meanwhile, the development and testing of ESA missions will continue throughout the year, with ESA working in collaboration with institutional partners and European industry. These range from drop tests for ESA's return vehicle Space Rider to the continued development on HERA, the first probe to rendezvous with a binary asteroid system and Europe's flagship planetary defender. For human spaceflight, ESA continues to collaborate with NASA on the Artemis programme, producing the crucial European service module which supplies the Orion capsule with oxygen, water, nitrogen and power during its trip to the Moon. After a successful maiden flight for Orion and ESM-1 on the Artemis One. ESM-2 is prepared for the next flight and ESM-3 will soon ship to the States. Another mission worth mentioning, and another symbol of international cooperation, is the ESA-JAXA EarthCare Cloud, Aerosol and Radiation Explorer mission. This new satellite is the most complex Earth Explorer to date and will advance our understanding of the role that clouds and aerosols play in reflecting incident solar radiation back into space and trapping infrared radiation emitted from Earth's surface. It is scheduled for launch in 2024. All these missions bring together the brightest minds and the greatest skills across Europe and far beyond. To do this, ESA can rely on support of its member states. By the end of the year, another space summit will be held where, under the leadership of Director-General Josef Aschbacher, ESA will continue to push towards high ambitions for space in Europe, just as it did in 2022, where the Ministerial Council in Paris rallied behind the European Space Agency with an increased budget. The plans and missions laid out by ESA at this summit 2023 might echo for years and bring a bright future for space in Europe.
0: As you might have gathered, that feature came to us courtesy of the European Space Agency. Now, we're going to go to the Moon Village Association at Deakin Edge. That's in Federation Square. In 2019, they took over the uh, building for the day, and we were there, the space show was there, and uh, recorded the goings-on. We're going to hear now, a panel discussion on space industry as it affects the objective of getting to the moon and also how it affects australia the um, speakers will introduce themselves so here's the panel discussion federation square in 2019
2: Good morning you you would have heard me talking so i'm astrophysicist from uh, university of from monash university and my interest is in uh, habitability of places like Moon and Mars. And I'll be moderator with our lovely panel. So we will start with agent number nine, Annie from Australian Space Agency. Annie, would you like to say a few words about your background and what do you do?
3: Um, so I'm Annie Daly. I am, I'm p- perhaps the, the chief operating officer for the Australian Space Agency. Uh, I was the ninth employee of the Australian Space Agency. It only last started on the 1st of July this year. But I'm an engineer by, by background and a, uh, a very long-serving government uh, representative that knows government and, and working through government.
2: And our second panelist is Dr. Amanda Caples, and she also has super cool name of Victoria Lead Scientist. <laughs>
4: So let's hear what that means. Okay, thanks, Jasmina. So, yes, I'm the lead scientist um, in the Department of Jobs, Precincts and Regions, but I work across the Victorian government, and uh, the way that I describe what it is that I do is that I just join the dots between um, uh, different... Sectors, um, different parts, different departments, different elements within our ecosystem, universities, stakeholders, and around things that really matter, so opportunities and problems, and uh, it's been my great pleasure to um, work on space and, and work with the Australian Space Agency.
2: Thank you. Our uh, next speaker is Carrie Doherty. She wears many, many hats while trying to finish her PhD at the same time. She has written amazing book called Australian, Australian Space, which you can buy uh, afterwards if you haven't bought it already. So, Kerry, tell us all about you. I don't think
5: there's anything left to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my name is Kerry Doherty. I am here today representing the World Space Week Association, of which I am a board member and have been associated with for 30-odd years. But uh, the rest of the time, I'm a freelance space historian, curator, writer, and uh, Lecturer for the International Space University and struggling PhD student.
2: And our uh, next speaker is Rosie Tasca, and I have to read this title. It's astronaut. Can you uh, tell um, us what a astronaut is?
6: I respond to whatever. So
2: <laughs> Tasca is,
6: I think, how we normally go. But yeah. Um, so I'm a bit all over the place. I. I was actually a musician, and then I moved into anthropology and public health and environmental science research overseas, and then when I hit the space industry, I ended up doing anthropology-based research, space medicine. Um, My research has spanned brains in space, fungi in space, um, indigenous astronomy, which is really awesome, and remote sensing. Um, I also run um, a comedy show in Tassie, and... Oh, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm training
2: to be a commercial astronaut,
6: um, and oh, I've completed... Um, yeah,
2: just off-site, kind of, on the side thing. Yeah, on the side, Trained to be just, an astronaut just yeah. on
6: weekends, training to be a commercial <laughs> astronaut, um, and I'm actually really excited, sorry, because there's three Australian-based Australians that have done um, the scientist astronaut training in Florida with this program, and all three of them are in this room today, which is... I just realised
2: that.
6: Aussie awesome. yeah. rules. You, you can have the panel back now. So.
2: <laughs> no, that's okay. Tell you something, so,
5: Rose. The very first conference I went to, Space Engineering Conference in 1984, there were about 100 men and three women. So at least the numbers have improved a bit since then.
6: I just Sorry. Um, just very quickly, um, I'm really interested in um, unusual pathways to the space industry. So I've been talking to people who didn't, Go do engineering or science at school and then get a grad position, and go straight into um, a government position or um, an aerospace engineering job. So, for example, one of my colleagues, he's 45 years old. He was a DJ in a strip club for most of his life. And now, I'm not supposed to tell too much of his story until he's ready, but now he runs um, a space focused organisation. He's getting his bachelor's degree. He didn't even have a GED. And the only thing he said to me, he was worried that there wasn't room for him in the space industry. So he made room. So it's worth it. The hard work is worth it. If you get stuck, there is always someone to help you. Just reach out. Most, what I love about space is, this is a made up number, but I'm sure it's close, is 98% of people who work in space do it because they love space.
2: Like what, How lucky are you to work in an industry like that? Just, just go for it. it. Yes, passion, passion. Um, but I'm just going to piggyback on your uh, issue of gender in STEM in general. Um, and I come from Serbia originally and I grew up in socialism, cooperative socialism, which was quite unique as a society where gender um, equality existed. And so when I came to Australia, and, you know, there's no issues of girls in STEM or um, having role models or professors in STEM to be, um, you know, enough men and women. And when I came to Australia as a PhD student, I was surrounded by women. So I haven't noticed it either until I went to U.S. and realized how much it's structured there. And then, of course, I came back to Australia with kids, and then it became obvious. So this is the, this is the issue that we have girls interested in, in STEM careers. They do enter undergraduate and even postgraduate studies, but it's the, usually it's the, um, the cost of maternity break, because the, the career is all, always seen just as a linear. You're not allowed to take breaks or turns or you know uh, things. But what's great is that, um, and of course, you persist, and you have support group, you, know, you support people around you, and your passion carries you through that. You focus on opportunities, not barriers. But what's happening now is that um, our male colleagues are going, well, I want to spend time with my children. Can I, can I drop down to four days a week uh, while my kids are little because I want to spend time with them? So it's that what we needed, it's that reinforcement that we needed to change this culture. But also I want to mention that I'm also a member of National Space Society and um, we have formed last year, after the Australian Space Research Conference, we have formed Women in Space uh, committee, chapter, and we're going to be actively promoting careers uh, for women in space. And as soon as we formed, uh, the, the word went around and various uh, associations of women in aerospace industry and other contact leaders, and especially uh, Careers in Space, which is a company, Australian company, but they actively promote careers, um, women applicants to the companies. So hopefully that will kickstart um, some of that re- retaining women in space industry as well. Okay, should we, sorry, should we open, we can talk about this forever. Should we open the space now to the audience? Question there?
7: Hi, thanks for that. Um, That was really interesting. I'm actually uh, from Matters Journal. Um, and a lot of what we are concerned with is storytelling and the importance of actually communicating um, to the public things that they didn't know before, and it was really interesting to know that not many people perhaps um, in Australia feel connected to space exploration because they're just not really aware of our involvement with it, so that was really interesting. Um, My question was around the demographics in um, a space society or an interplanetary society, so say we do settle Mars, do you think there's a specific type of person who would actually have the capital and this and the skill set to be able to go to Mars in the first place and how would that shape uh, the, the society that we form there? Would it be more homogenous or maybe more egalitarian?
2: Would somebody like to answer that? Oh, I'll have a
5: go. I think it will very much depend on who it is that starts that... Um, settlement on Mars, Um, whether it's a private company, whether it's a a space agency, and if it's a space agency, you know, whether it's the Chinese space agency or the American space agency, because they're obviously going to have different approaches to what they see as the the make-up of, you know, the astronauts they want and and the roles they want them to fulfil. So I, I don't think you can give a single hard and fast answer because it will really depend on how that actually progresses, you know if it 's a world cooperative effort that 's going to be different from if it 's a single single nation or single agency effort. Um, anybody else want
4: to Come on. yeah i 'm happy to say, so I think we 've got plenty of time to think about it um, so and um, because when and when you do think about it it 's not until you do that you realize that Uh, in order to establish uh, a society on Mars, where do you get the infrastructure? So there's going to have to be a fair amount of infrastructure that's needed to be built before that's going to be a reality. And sort of working back from that you know, so there will be, and the only way that really makes sense to do that is to utilise robots, which is why there's such an interest in robots, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and of course, we've got human shielding, so uh, or shield, radiation shielding, not only of the equipment, but also people in in order to survive on there. So, so I think um, we've got time and and it's a really important question to ask, and that's why I think the uh, the institution of uh, ethics and looking at the legal aspects of colonisation or even just exploration of outer space is so important and something that I certainly... And, and I don't know, Annie, whether you're able to comment on, but um, NASA and, and other agencies are starting to lead that work, knowing that... And, and, and the good news is that they recognise it's something that they need to get ahead of and are starting to explore and engage with the public on these questions.
2: And what's interesting... Uh, so uh, I have an online... Course Open Free Course MOOC about how to survive on Mars and it focuses on um, science behind it. it. It was made, we made it so that we inspire mostly high school students to stay with science and showing the science is about, we understand science challenges, um, but we need to develop technology. And it's interesting because it's through the FutureLearn platform which really focuses on learners learning from each other a lot. Uh, and we run it now four or five times. Every time learners bring up, because they research their own articles, we provide some and we ask them to search for some and they find and conclude how um, to send women in space will be much more efficient. Um, and a, a research paper just came recently, a month ago or so, again saying that women can actually uh, bear these um, uh, space travel much better than men. We can, we can have doctors comment on that. But uh, it, it sounds like a lot of data points to the fact that women will have to be, um, you know, a significant contribution. And NASA is definitely working on that. They promote, they have now their eight female uh, recruits. And they're definitely saying, you know, four of these women will touch Mars at some point. Um, China uh, certainly has a lot of female astronauts. So I think it's becoming more... Um, We don't want to see just men touching, uh, you know, leaving the steps on the moon and and Mars. I think we'll definitely see some female astronauts as well.
8: Thank you all for sharing your thoughts and insights. This is a fascinating session. Um, My question perhaps goes to our luminary from the Australian Space Agency. Um, Given your insight into the uh, strategy of the agency and given the inspirational nature of human spaceflight, When do you think the first Australian
0: astronaut will launch?
2: You mean Australian astronaut that didn't have to change uh, citizenship? Correct. (laughs) Uh, I would always like
3: to say that our strategy is going to take into account the fact that the inspiration piece is always to have humans in space. And I don't think that the Australian Space Agency is not going to have that as as an end goal in our strategy. So we're, we're excited about it. Um, it's definitely, I have to temper the enthusiasm of our politicians who love to say it quite quickly, um, but it, our, our strategy will we'll, we'll work towards that. And that is something that uh, it can't be done in, in, you know, in five days, like it takes some time to do it, um, but we're not limiting our sights.
6: What I find quite interesting is that Australia was actually offered associate membership, I think five times, and they turned it down for various reasons, which would have made it easier in the long term if you wanted to send someone to space. But that said, you still have to fork up the money for it. So that's 75 million US at the moment, just for the seat. That doesn't include your training. and so. You, the government has to convince the public that that's a reasonable expense, and we're having enough trouble convincing the public that having any sort of space activity is a reasonable expense. So it's an awesome endeavour, and that would be really exciting, but it will be interesting to see how it goes, yeah.
0: On this evening's The Space Show, we are at Federation Square, Deakin Edge, the Moon Village Association meeting held in 2019. So a few points in that discussion are a little out of date and we will return to Deakin Edge after these messages on The Space Show.
9: On FM, online, 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern Southern FM. FM.
0: Now on the space show, we return to the Moon Village Association at Deacon Edge and Federation Square for a continuation of the panel discussion.
8: Thank you, everyone. It was really exciting. i uh, was been here from the first session, so lots of things. But just to wrap up everything, I was thinking, so isn't it uh, to have a Moon Village is a big claim? Because everything that I... Get today is just focusing on specific uh, fields like from medical from industry and different things, but uh, for myself as a person who shift from urban planning to remote sensing, I was thinking so uh, we invest lots of money, we invest lots of energy let 's say two two years, twenty years later we 're going to have a village, and is that village have identity uh, or are we going to have some sort of lunar cities like we have in different countries now, kind of dead cities that people even don't want to leave. So I was thinking, do we have some sort of strategical plan for next 20 years, considering lots of aspects? I see there is lots of potentials here. But in terms of having a comprehensive vision, uh, I see a big lag here. Do we have something to cover this lag?
2: Thank you. Not yet. That's what Moon Village Association is mm. about—actually working on that, preempting what's going to come, and working on that. Uh, but in terms of colonies, um, establishments on the on Mars, there is a paper that came from um, uh, a, a social studies. So, so it's a group that does social studies in policy and politic. They actually suggested a roadmap of how that would look, and they took in account all of the things that happened through Earth, in different historical moments, in different um, power struggles, and they suggested a model. And if you just Google um, idea for space society, that paper should come up, it's open source. So academics do think about it, but um, let's see what we have from our panel members. I'm going to
3: go on one little part of that, and why um, you know it's, it's exciting to have long-term visions because you have a lot of steps to get through. We've moved from big government spending. Billions of dollars doing exploration work, and we're now moving into the more exciting part, which is the commercial sector seeing this as a commercially viable opportunity. So we can go and send and set up a village, and we can spend the entire GDP of the country to, to do that, just so that we can all go there and go, Oh, yes, my footprint's there. Yeah. Um, that's one exciting uh, step. But we need to make this something that, is, uh, something that can be sustaining and self-sustaining. And one of the ways to do that is to make it so that uh, there's, a, there's a real commercial agenda and opportunity. And that's where Australia is trying to get its little niche bit in. We're, we've missed the, the big government part of spending on, 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 on major missions. Uh, and we're going to contribute by, by putting some of the best skills that Australia has into making and being part of creating a village. And the, the, the baby steps to get that is to actually see, you know, for instance, like the, the Lunar Gateway Project or, or, the, or the Moon Race or all the activities that are going to it as to be a part of those steps to, to create that village. Because the village is like the, the, the end goal, is it? But, you know, your village is going to be constantly expanding and it will change. And the thing that we're excited about in the agency is that it's going to be the commercial sector, and it's going to be people like, like people here that see a great vision and an idea and, and can make it a commercial reality to, to make it real and to say there's an actually a very good reason that we should go there beyond just you know the, the, the scientific outcome of it, the excitement.
4: Yeah, and it might have already been mentioned today that um, just about two weeks ago, NASA uh, announced that you know it was, um, going to get to the back to the moon and stay on the moon by two thousand twenty eight so big bold mission analogous to that back in the 1960s but what was different was that um, instead of it, they effectively said it's going to be a public private partnership so uh, so there's a real opportunity for countries like Australia and for companies to be part of that and to on the whole you know, whether it's the village and how that village is maintained to a whole range of different things. So I think there's an opportunity today that hasn't been uh, existed before and that participating in that rather than uh, bragging rights for we've sent a rocket up and we've got a human up, you know, the the... the why would you do it when there are so many other opportunities that we could play? And I think the other thing, getting back to the consideration of, of just this whole area, when, when NASA... Uh, when JFK said, we're going to the moon, what NASA actually did was work backwards from getting the astronauts back on the ground, or in that case, the sea... Uh, before, you know, getting to the moon. And so for a moon village, I think, you know, so that's going to be part of the discussion around the moon village is because maybe people will go up there that don't want to stay for their entire life. So how do you get them back? So I don't know whether that's been talked about uh, today, but that's something else just to raise that we would need to have community stakeholder engagement on to understand how that piece works.
5: Thanks. Um, I've got a question just around STEM and getting more children engaged in STEM in this area. So um, I guess the last state I lived in was, was Tasmania, and hearing you speak about what you've got here in Melbourne for Year 7, 8 and 9 children to go to sounds absolutely fantastic. And we don't have things like that, particularly in places like Tasmania. So is there going to be any agency funding uh, towards kind of supporting these sorts of things in places like Tassie or other states around Australia?
3: Um, yes, Victoria is very well known for being a, a STEM-leading uh, state. Uh, the agency is currently working with um, agreements with all the states and territories, and I do know that our agreement with Tasmania will include um, opportunities to, to grow this, the STEM a- a element um, and, and I'm not 100% sure what those actual activities will, will be on the ground, but I know it's part of every single agreement that we're working with the states and territories. Um, STEM engagement is, is something that is my personal um, uh, uh, driver, and, and I think during my presentation I said as one of my KPIs, is to actually figure out how we're going to, to get the next generation of the workforce in because we're going to create a lot of jobs and we need people to, to fill those jobs too and we want them to be here in Australia. Um, we, we are looking at it. We don't have our STEM strategy. It's one of the many uh, strategies that are going to, to underpin our, our broader strategy. I'm very excited though. you're going to find that uh, inspiration piece is not just going to be a, an added-on um, you know, priority. It's going to be one of our pillars to, to really hold up the industry. And we're going to need to work with um, all those organisations that have been put up on the screen to find out which is the best way to direct it. We do not have huge amounts of money and we're not here to replicate what the education department should do and what the private sector should do and what not-for-profits are doing. We're there to, to try to coordinate and make sure that if there's gaps, we fill them. And if there is a gap in Tasmania then I'm interested and we'll find a way to fill it. But also
6: I'm from Tassie and um, my team's working really hard to try and bring Tasmanians to events on the mainland. Andrew is here um, today part, as part of one of those projects. Um, it's not March but it's a start and you know that you've got to start. That's just it. Um, and there are Tasmanians in the industry. There's quite a few I've run into so that's something to be proud of, I think. So. So,
5: so, I, I, oh, sorry, just to ahead. say, I think in the short term, too, you shouldn't overlook the resources that you actually have in Tasmania. Don't forget, you've got a, a fantastic resource in the planetarium at the uh, uh, Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston. And what a lot of people don't realise is you've also got a, a very interesting resource in the uh, Grote Reba Museum, which is attached to the... Um, University of Tasmania radio telescope facility. So these are things which don't cost a lot of money to get your students to, and they can be uh, you know, very inspirational. And this is where, uh, say in this short term, particularly when there's not a lot of money around, um, grassroots things like World Space Week, where you work within whatever budget you've got, whatever means you've got, but it gives you access to resources that you can parlay um, into the, the budgets you've got at home in Tasmania. You know, there's lots of ways. You don't have to wait for the government handout to, um, to start grassroots STEM encouragement.
2: Uh, I also wanted to just to, to say the last year um, I was approached by um, a teacher from Launceston... One of the last the college, I forgot now what the name of the college is, but they're looking into building something like VSec, like our VSec center. Um, and so they're they talking to VSec people who actually, whose job now is to go and help other areas to develop something. Because as you probably know, uh, sometimes when you're building something for the first time, it costs more money. And then you know how to suggest people to, to build something on a smaller budget. The other option is uh, we have John Monash Science School that is uh, on the grounds of Monash University, and it's a first STEM specialized school. Um, Students from anywhere in Australia can actually take classes from year 10 and 11 um, where they're facilitated by teachers and students from uh, John Monash School. And I'm working with one of the teachers to actually build like a Mars base open-ended unit, project-based, which then get, you know, we can have stakeholders and they can talk to industry, they can have mentors from industry. So, and of course, VR is another thing. We're developing a lot of VR. Um, we have opaque space, which is Victorian from Melbourne. They build whole lunar base that you can see in um, Science Works until April. So VR is another option to have a shared resource um, that any, any students can use. Um, Kings
6: Meadows and Launceston College, and Prospect High School, and I've got a list of all done space-based activities. Um, I'm doing primary school visits soon. If you want to get in touch, I can give you a list. Um, And, like, it's a start. Like, we might have ideas to build on it more. But there are some great challenges run by the Space Agency, both NASA and European Space Agency, that schools can just jump on board with the resources they already have. Um, And the challenge-based you do like there's a whole sorts of things, you can build a habitat, design a habitat, you can the design robotics the robotics one, there's a space apps challenge, which you get in a team, and people are delegated to do things as much as a logo. Um,
2: a four- sorry,
6: logos are very important. I cannot <laughs> stress enough how important branding was, despite how I just said that. I'm so sorry. I do branding for companies, so I'm very sorry I said that way. That way. But yes. Yeah, so logos, so artists, engineers, they get the whole team together. So there are opportunities, and this is the frustration of a lot of people I've had, and, but people just don't know where to start. But once you can start, you, it opens up. It's a, it's a whole big wide world. So.
5: Well, don't forget to now with the, uh, you know, the connectivity we have all around the world. You can actually, in a classroom in Tasmania, you can be connected to the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney or Questacon or the National Space Centre in Leicester in the UK and actually have your classes participate virtually in programs right around the world. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of options there um, as I say, that don't really need you to have to outlay a lot of money in the first place.
6: Yeah, we run a Skype for scientists. Like, we could go on and on, couldn't we, with all the things that are available. But like I said, if you don't know where to look to start with, it can be a bit... So once you do know, it's just... There's a lot of possibilities.
2: And there's different budgets. But that's that's the thing. A
6: lot of those things don't require additional resources except for people's time, um, which is a valuable resource. Can I do a Um, shameful plug? Yeah,
3: the Australian Space Agency, due to popular demand by the public, insisted on us doing merchandise. And we actually launched our merchandise on, the, on Monday. Yeah, actually Monday, this week. So it hasn't even hit the shelves yet in the public domain, but you can order it online. And if you are at Avalon and you do go to the Victorian stand, you can just do another 10 metres to the Australian Space Agency stand and be able to get um, a discount code to get out. But the reason I've said that is that we actually partnered with Questacon, um, which is a a, a national science and technology centre that does go around the country. um, And all the uh, additional funding will go back into um, into education and research. Um, So that's an exciting part. So the the mums and dads can support um, space education um, by contributing by wearing a very proud um, uh, shirt with the Australian Space Agency, because I did see that there's a NASA shirt here, and hopefully one day we'll get a few more uh, Australian Space Agency shirts out there.
2: Yes, definitely. It, it all, some, some of the items are already out of stock. People already cleaned, cleaned the, the stock out, so hopefully more will come. So, I'd like... Oh, sorry, one more question.
10: I just wanted to give a brief plug again for the Space Industry Association of Australia, which represents um, businesses, um, universities, um, organisations and individuals who are engaged or interested in space industry. Um, We have a young professional category of membership which is basically um, free. Jasmina is a member of the association. As not, as not in a young though. C- <laughs> category, though, no. so. um, category. And it's also a great place for making connections and networking and learning more about how um, the industry operates in Australia. It's been in existence since, I think, the Ooh, early, early 90s. 90s. 92, I think it started, 92. Actually, yeah. So we've represented um, space industry for a long time and um, have... Uh, a good relationship with our beloved agency uh, as well. So, so if anybody is wanting to kind of um, connect into a broader community, I encourage you to come and talk to me if you'd like to know more about the association. And, um, you know, this is going to be all of our industries here that will take us to the moon. And um, I would like to see Vegemite as the first Australian artefact on the moon.
2: And I mean, what's important with the space in the association is that they have small grants. So if you are a teacher and you join, let's say, the association, you can apply for grants. And you, if your students have projects, you can apply for small grants. The, it, you will have a list of all um, individuals there and in contact, so you can network, which is what the point is. So, um, yeah, I think I think the whole point is that having space agency have now raised awareness among those people who always seen it as, you know, a NASA thing, and then there's this other space agency, which is European Space Agency. Uh, but as um, uh, Megan Clark shared once, uh, she's receiving letters from the, the head of space agency. She's receiving letters now from 6 year olds saying, oh, wow, I can be an astronaut now. I couldn't have been four, but now, like, it might you know in my life before I was six, you know, that was bringing me down, but now I can be an astronaut, so, you know, that I'm looking into bright future, and that's what's important, that we have space agency to raise awareness, and they're basically a shining example that we're trying to follow and support in, in showing all the possible uh, career careers, and as we've shown throughout the whole day, space is so inclusive, from being scientists and engineers to being artists. We have ballerinas. We have um, people who research uh, interaction between um, doing a ballet and space exploration. Almost uh, th- There's almost no area of human endeavor that does not touch space. And it, it's not really surprising because we all look at the same sky. And so that connects us all. So I would thank our panel.
0: And leading that panel discussion was Jasmina Lazendek-Galloway, who is an astrophysicist at Monash University in Clayton. This is The Space Show.
7: 88.3 Southern FM.
0: Where you are listening to The Space Show. NASA's Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel yesterday released its 2022 annual report. Congress established the panel in 1968 to provide advice and make recommendations to the NASA Administrator on safety matters after the Apollo 1 fire claimed the lives of three American astronauts. Their report comes a week after the commemorative The commemoration of the 20th anniversary of the death of the seven STS-107 crew as the Columbia re-entered the atmosphere at the end of a two-week science mission. Now, after the accident, which happened on February the 1st, pretty much, there was a Memorial service for the STS-107 crew held at the National Cathedral in Washington D.C. on February the 6th of 2003 Singing at that ceremony was Patti LaBelle with a song called Way Up There Now this song was written by Tina Clark in 2002 for the NASA art program So uh, let's hear that song as it was sung Uh, 20 years ago
9: Mm way way up there where peace remains where silence and And amazing grace bring us closer to our home in space. The stars all gather and illuminate to lead us safely through hell. Where our home is in space Way up there Where peace remains Where silence lenders. And angels sing Imaginations Amazing grace. To our hope in space.
0: Singing twenty years ago, February the sixth, at the memorial service for the STS one hundred seven crew. That was Paddy LaBelle with the song Way Up There. You're listening to The Space Show. You can find us at space.asn.au. So that's to find the Space Association of Australia, space.asn.au. I'm Andrew Rennie.